morning. How's everyone doing today? Good. We're good to see y'all. I just want to thank Pastor Doug again for the invitation to be here. Uh, My wife, Samantha, and our six-month baby are back home in Queens. They had a family uh, commitment to be at, but they send their love. And so as Pastor Doug had mentioned, uh, I have the privilege of getting to do Chi Alpha. And Chi Alpha, our heart is simply to reach college students and to show them the love of Jesus because we know that an encounter with God can transform the entire course of their lives. And people often ask, uh, why, why do we do college ministry? And I tell them, we really believe that it is one of the most strategic, strategic mission fields on the planet. Pastor Doug alluded to it, but uh, college is a time where people, next generation leaders, are going to be present on our campus. College is a season where people are oftentimes asking life's big questions for the first time. Things like, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who are the type of people I want to surround myself with? And time and time again, student after student is trying to wrestle through all of these questions apart from a relationship with God. And so we know that so many of the things that the hearts are searching for and longing for are only going to be found if their life is connected to Jesus. And so that's why we're there doing what we do. And so we have so many things going on from Bible studies where where, where we're sharing Jesus with one another like learning how to apply the scriptures to our lives from worship services and and camping outings and just being on campus evangelizing and just sharing Jesus. Like there's so many things going on, but our our heart is to see students introduced into community and introduced to the kingdom uh, because that won't just give them four core years at college, but that will transform the trajectory of their life forever. It will transform the way they parent one day. It will transform their generation family lines. It will transform uh, their futures. It will transform where they put their focus. And Queens is so awesome because at our school, we have over 70 different nations represented, which is pretty incredible, uh, and 110 different languages spoken. And so we get to partner with God's heart in reaching the nations simply by being present on our campus. This past semester, there was a college student named Wilson. He's a Chinese student who's been in America for a few years now, and he recently gave his life to the Lord. And it's just so cool because Wilson is the first Christian in his family. And so he is now trying to share Jesus with his brothers and sisters, his parents, and he's trying to chart a different course than the one that's been written uh, for his family up until this point. And so for all of the uh, students that are saying yes to Jesus, and, you know, we get amped about that, and it brings a lot of excitement and joy, but there's also a sense of sadness for the many who don't. Uh, A lot of people don't think they need God. A lot of people kind of just assume that they're making out just fine on their own, and so often they uh, reject wanting anything to do with him. And I would say that as a society, uh, the message is not lean on God. I would even argue that the message is not lean on others. The message that I find so uh, repeating is lean on yourself. And I'm like, where, where, where did that idea come from? Why, why is the message lean on yourself? Well, when I was growing up, one of my favorite movies of all time is, I guess it still is, Finding Nemo. Man, it's a classic. I've seen it dozens of times. If you haven't seen it, you should go home and watch it. As a kid, the movie is both fun 
and terrifying at the same time. Because you have a little girl who should not be legally able to own goldfish. You have a father and son redemption story. You have a, a shark trying not to eat fish. You have fish with memory problem. What is there not to love? I'm sure you too have your favorite Disney movie. And here's the thing about Disney movies. Well, here's the thing about most movies. They make for great entertainment, but terrible theology. It's true. They reinforce ideas constantly about how wonderful we are. And don't get me wrong, we are wonderful to an extent. Like, we are made in God's image. That is a high privilege. That is such a, a wonderful honor. But with reinforced messages that say things like, just keep swimming, dig down deep, the answer's always within yourself. You are special. Accept no limitations. This easily turns into a gospel of self-reliance. And I think most of us resonate with Disney movies, if we're honest, because deep down somewhere in there, we have this desire to be spectacular. We have a desire to be relevant. We have a desire to be seen as special. But what is at the core of all these Disney movie cliches is pride. And pride is when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It's this ruthless, unyielding concentration on the self. And the dangerous thing about pride is most people never think it's something that, that characterizes their life. However, it can creep in so subtly and just slowly derail us from the life God has for us. It's incredibly destructive. Theologians have said that pride is the chief sin greater than all the others because pride leads us to occupy the place of God in our lives. Like, our lives are meant to orbit around God the Father. He is meant to be the center of our world. But pride says, I want everything and everyone to orbit around me. And if we're at the center of our universe, that means we have pushed God to the outside. And the story of the Bible shows what happens time and time and time again when people try to live a life apart from God. I'll give you a clue. It's never good. And so today, we're going to look at one of the minor prophets named Zephaniah. Don't know the last time you read Zephaniah, but today we're going to get familiar with the boy. Uh, Zephaniah was a prophet who prophesied in uh, Judah, Israel's southern kingdom. And he prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Northern Israel had already been exiled off, and so uh, the southern kingdom was all that was left. And Zephaniah's message is actually all about the dangers of pride. And this morning, we're going to learn this, that pride is the doorway to God's judgment, but humility is the doorway to God's Grace, And this is a theme we see all throughout the scriptures. Like James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there's a question I want us all to ask ourselves this morning, myself included. Where is pride lurking in my life? Where is pride lurking in my life? Look at Zephaniah chapter 1. He says this, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away both man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. So the first thing that Zephaniah is going to show us is that there is a reality of judgment. And to understand the reality of God's judgment, we have to answer a couple of questions. We first have to answer, why do we deserve judgment? And then we're going to talk about why or what is God's heart in sending judgment. 
so in probably one of the most depressing prophetic books, Zephaniah is urgently trying to get the people of God to wake up. Think about what God's claiming. He's not just threatening judgment. He's threatening total annihilation that people are going to be wiped off the face of the planet, just, just completely gone. And this judgment affects everyone from Jews to Gentiles to the people of God to surrounding nations. No one is exempt. And this is a point that Zephaniah goes on to develop, but it's not just people. He says birds in the sky and, and fish in the sea, like all of that is going to be destroyed. And so if you remember that scene in Genesis 1 where God creates all of this beauty and all of this wonder and all of this majesty, all of that is going to be wiped out and completely destroyed. No more Nemo. He goes on to say, when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priest, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch, those who turn their back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Isn't it true that we have a tendency to expect judgment for other people but not for ourselves. You know, people who think differently than we do, vote differently than we do, look differently than we do. We have a tendency to want judgment for them and grace for ourselves. And the Israelites would have been the exact same. They would have 100% expected judgment for Gentiles, uh, for, for those people, for, for those outside the household of faith. But what God does is so interesting because his first word of judgment is actually declared against his own people. And he's saying that although they bow to me, their hearts are far from me because they have been seduced into the worship of other gods. And this is what is causing the judgment. Their nationality won't save them. Their religious acts won't save them. The church attendance could be flawless. It won't save them. Why? Because their hearts were cold toward God. And listen to how Zephaniah describes this day of coming judgment. He says, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. I will bring such distress on all the people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Good morning to you too, Zephaniah. Man, <laughs> that'll get you through the day. If we're honest... Most of us don't live with this kind of portrait of God at the forefront of our minds. Uh, I imagine that if you've had a tough week and you're sitting down, you got your cup of coffee, your tea, and, and you're, you're combing through your devotionals, looking for something to really warm your heart, no one turns to Zephaniah chapter 1. <laughs> However, in order to worship God correctly, we have to see God clearly. And we can't just pick and choose the parts about God that we enjoy and then discard the ones we don't. When I was a kid, I remember passing by this Build-A-Bear store at our local mall when I was with my dad. And every time I passed by the Build-A-Bear store, I was always so amazed. There were so many different colors. There were so many different options. There were so many different outfits. And, and I still remember that stuffing station. Man, 
the stuffing station. It was like a big magic trick. They had all this stuffing and then flat bears and then they became plump. And I was just like, how does this happen? So I just, for the longest time, I wanted my own personalized bear. It never happened. I grieved and I got over it and I'm 26 now, so I don't need one anymore. But do you know what happens when we choose to worship a Build-A-Bear type of God? We come out with a God that fits our comfort, our own convenience, and our preferences, but not a God that's actually willing to, or calling me to lay anything down, not a God that challenges my assumptions, and not a God that is ever leading me to repentance. And as I picture this scene, I, I think of Zephaniah looking around at the people of God who have, uh, they're meant to center their life around God, but they've built their, their entire lives centered on themselves, centered on their own happiness, centered on their own comfort, centered on their own uh, dreams and wealth and, and what, all of these things other than a life centered on God. And I think it's easy for at least two people in the room to say, that's right, those wicked Judah people, they should be judged. How nasty. But just because pride expresses itself in different ways and takes on different forms, all pride is equally destructive, and that includes spiritual pride. And we're in danger of spiritual pride when we begin to substitute a passionate love for Jesus Christ for empty religious exercise. What does spiritual pride look like? It looks like when... Jesus never disagrees with your personal opinion. When you stop laying down rights, preferences, desires, when you start to think that your obedience is doing God a personal favor, when you start comparing your success to the failures of the people around you, or when the concept of grace becomes elementary to you, something for beginners, something that you have moved way past, I think we have to pay attention when, when those uh, attitudes begin to shape our hearts because it's this sort of pride that is the reason for the judgment that Zephaniah is describing here. There's a real temptation to diminish God in our minds and to kind of live as though no one can tell me how I ought to live or what's best for my life. And, and so, uh, uh, honestly, in our culture, even though I'm sure some of us, like, there is nothing more offensive to the fact, other than the fact that we are accountable to a very real God and that we will be judged according to what we do with the life he's given us. And so, a lot of people live as though they are the biggest thing in the universe and God is the smallest thing. And when God is small in our minds, the reality is we allow so many other things to become supreme in our hearts. And so this is the reason we deserve judgment. When we're at campus and I'm talking to students and I think about the 20,000 students at Queens College, judgment is coming. In, in Syracuse, you have friends, neighbors, loved ones. Like judgment is a real thing. But what's God's heart in sending it? If we just take a step back for a moment and pause, like, why does God care so much about what is at the center of my life? Is his judgment nothing more than an adolescent temper tantrum? Is he just upset that people don't seem to be all that interested in him, and so he's just going to let him have it? No. God's judgment is actually a reflection of his love. In fact, judgment is not the thing opposed to love. The thing opposed to love is indifference. 
I don't know if you've had any experience dealing with a shady used car salesman. I have on uh, numerous occasions. The first car I bought out of high school was a 2014 Chevy Lumina Classic. And so I bought it from the shady used car salesman for $1,200. And I remember driving off the lot. I was the man. And fast forward eight months later, and the engine totally dies. I was angry. I was... I mean, what, what in the world? As I reflected on the moment, I was just so appalled that this man literally sold me a car that he knew was headed in the wrong direction. He didn't care. I don't know what I was expecting for $1,200, but you, I felt like my anger was justified, like he did me dirty. <laughs> God is not a used car salesman, and he cares way too much about people to just watch them lead a life headed into the wrong direction. The whole point of judgment and wrath is actually meant to lead people to repentance. God is saying, turn around. Don't waste your life. God sees how we're being destroyed by the things we give ourselves to. He sees how we're destroying each other. He sees how we're destroying this world. And so in an act of grace, he is trying to draw people back to himself. Is he angry? Yeah. But like any good parent would be, but he's not evil. And God's anger is motivated by a heart that wants something that's so much better for you and me because he knows there's a better way. So there's this reality of judgment, but now Zephaniah is going to show us the nature of true repentance. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. What I love about God is that his heart is always for the redemption of people. His heart is always full of mercy and compassion, and he's constantly moving toward people even when he has every right to discard them. If you haven't been paying attention, the Israelites have not earned any favors from God. They were on their way to experiencing judgment, but God still loves them enough to stop them and tell them to come back home. Wow. But even with this kind of grace-filled invitation, do you know why repentance is so hard for, for many of us? Because it forces us to be honest. It forces us to take responsibility for our sin and say, I've messed up, to take responsibility for the things we have done or the things we've left undone. And honestly, it just makes us feel exposed. And so it's much, much easier to just live a life of hiding or to live a life of pretend. I mean, think about the people of Judah. They are God's chosen people, meant to be a light to the surrounding nations, meant to be holy and set apart. I'm like, that's a pretty, that, that's a pretty cool title. But they've compromised serving God, given themselves over to idols, and have essentially said, God, you're cool, but mm, I'd rather just do life on my own. I'm good without you. And these people who are meant to reflect the glory of God, to be image bearers to the world around them, are now being called shameful. Some translations say undesirable. Their sin has so dehumanized them. 
Their sin has so covered up their glory. It has covered up their, their true identity, covered over their, their true calling. And I just wonder, have, have you ever been here before? Have you ever felt the, the crushing reality of your own sin and kind of just had this, this wake-up call realization where your life is far from where you know God desires it to be? God never exposes people simply to leave them feeling naked. God exposes us so we can be honest and so we can experience change. It is no surprise to me that the first step in most recovery groups is honesty. Because having an honest, sober sense of yourself is what humility is all about. And that's what's needed for change. Proud people, they don't repent. They point fingers. They get defensive. They make excuses. They blame shift. But the interesting that happens is when we're humble, it opens us up to experiencing the grace of God. And by the way, even the desire to be humble is because God's grace is already at work in your life. And so humility is fueled by grace, but then it's met with more grace. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So good. So if you're in here and you feel as though on the other side of judgment or you're on the other side of repentance is judgment, know that the Lord does not meet repentance with judgment. He meets repentance with grace and with a renewed sense of his presence. But we need to keep in mind that, yes, God's people are given the opportunity to repent, but they're told that today is the day. Like, no more waiting. It is time to respond to God's grace, drawing us and calling us near. And so what does true repentance actually look like? Zephaniah shows us a couple things. He first says, true repentance is marked by obedience. True repentance is marked by obedience. So good intentions, they're good, but they're not enough. Good ideas aren't enough. Confession alone is not enough. Confession is a powerful thing, but only if it has followed through a change of actions. You see, true repentance exposes the ugliness of sin, and it actually points to the beauty of Jesus. So when our hearts have been captivated by him, it makes following him a joy. Why? Because we love him, and we trust him, and we see that there's a better way with him. Our hearts will actually be most fully satisfied when our lives are surrendered to Jesus. In, in fact, there's nothing more powerful than uh, in college ministry when we're getting to see friends turn away from an old life of sin and give themselves fully over to the Lordship of Jesus. I think of my friend Terrell who had a history of being involved in witchcraft and demonic forces and, and, and real oppressive things. And this past semester, I got to see him get baptized and, and just commit his life fully to Jesus, leaving old things in the past or I think of a girl named Dyra who felt the Lord was telling her to, to walk away from a lifestyle of same-sex attraction, and, and she obeyed. And there's so many other stories like this, but time and time again, these students find a joy, they find a love, they find a peace in Jesus that they couldn't find anywhere else. And now their obedience to Jesus leads to joy where their old obedience to sin always led to regret. And it always led to shame, and it always led to unmet expectations. So true repentance is first marked by obedience, but it's also marked by 
a hunger for righteousness. What does it mean to seek the Lord in righteousness? It means to pursue the things that God loves. In other words, these people are being compelled to become more and more like God. The word hunger indicates desire. Maybe you're hungry right now. You're like, I want a cheese sandwich. I don't know. Um, But, (laughs) you know, it's an intense longing for something. Like sometimes I long for Chick-fil-A. But one commentator noted how oftentimes the word hunger, like this impulse, is so often associated with our physical condition, but far too rarely with our spiritual condition. Zephaniah is saying it's not enough just to acknowledge God, uh, acknowledge brokenness, follow along half-heartedly. He's compelling people, really go after God. Live with your heart set on heaven. Live with the end in view. Live with a passion for the things of God. Live with a heart that has been captivated by the beauty and by the wonder of Jesus Christ. So yes, God's judgment is real. It's coming. But what I love is that his grace is also made available. So the final thing Zephaniah is going to show us is hope for the humble. Hope for the humble. So as much as Zephaniah has talked about judgment, he concludes with a word of hope. And this hope is so awesome because as as I was reading this and, and studying it, this hope isn't just reserved for a Jewish heart. It's not even reserved for a religious heart. It's not reserved for an American heart. The hope is reserved for a humble heart. Zephaniah chapter 3 says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. I had mentioned before that God first declares a word of judgment to the people of Judah, but he hadn't forgotten about the surrounding nations. Zephaniah chapter 2, go home and read it. It is all about God's judgment against the nations. And so God declares judgment to Judah and judgment to the nations. But then when we come to chapter 3, we're not met with another word of judgment. We're met with a word of hope. Look at what God says. He says, I will purify the lips of the peoples that they may call on the name of the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about the nations. He's talking about people far from him, those outside the household of faith, Gentiles, people like you and me. God first starts by saying he is going to to do the miraculous in their life and he's going to show them mercy. Why do the lips need to be purified? Kind of sounds interesting. The lips need to be purified because they've been contaminated by the worship of false gods. But in the future, the lips would be pure as they call out on the name of the Lord. And Jesus says that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. I'm sorry, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so God isn't just going to give them some metaphorical mouthwash. He's actually going to transform them at the deepest recesses of who they are. And this is going to change everything. Because they're not just going to worship God with their lips. They're going to worship God with their lives. The text says that they will serve him. Then we come down to verse 10. And Zephaniah declares that worshipers from beyond the rivers of Cush would come near and bring God offerings. What does this mean? It means that God is gathering people from every tribe from every tongue, from every nation, from every far off place. And he is drawing those people back to himself. You see, just as God's judgment would reach out to the far ends of the earth, so would his forgiveness and his grace. There's hope for the humble. 
Because it's the humble person who by faith chooses to receive God's grace and God's forgiveness for their life. And hope for the humble means that there is hope for people that are radically different from me and you. I live in Queens, and it's an incredibly diverse place. Come and visit. We'll give you the tour. And living in a city means that every day I encounter people who are wildly different from me every single day. But even you as well in Syracuse, I'm sure to some extent, like you are encountering people who are just different than you on an ongoing basis. And what I've noticed is that it's easy to get annoyed with people who are different than us because uh, they drive different, they think different, they value different, or we can start to just think that God just happens to be particularly pleased with people who match your personality type or your nationality or your preferences, your biases. And and sometimes, if we're honest, in, in the worst case, it's easy to think that because someone is different, they're more deserving of God's judgment than I am. And they're hopeless. I think sometimes those attitudes can can shape our hearts when we think of college students. Like because they're different, they're hopeless, or they're lost, or they're too far gone. And a couple weeks ago, I was reading something by Tim Keller, who pastored in New York City for many, many years. He'd recently gone to be with the Lord. And he, he just challenges all of those assumptions. And what I'm about to read, he's specifically addressing a city, but I would widen this to anyone who is different than us culturally. He says this, The city will challenge us to discover the power of the gospel in new ways. We will find people who seem spiritually and morally hopeless to us, and we will think those people will never believe in Christ. But such a comment, such as this, is revealing in itself. If salvation is truly by grace, not by virtue and merit, why should we think that anyone is less likely than ourselves to be a Christian? Why would anyone's conversion be any greater miracle than our own? The city may force us to discover that we don't really believe in sheer grace. No, we really believe God mainly saves nice people, people like us. Have you ever been here before? Because if I'm honest, I know I have. And that's the thing about pride. Pride finds security in comparison. The proud person is always looking for whoever they can one-up and whose life they can look at to feel better about (laughs) themselves. But the humble person, they find security in grace. They find shelter in grace. The the, the humble person would never say, I've earned a right, I've earned my spot at God's table. No. The humble person says, even when I didn't want anything to do with God, he pursued me and he chased me. And he loved me and he was patient with me on my worst day. And I love that the gospel brings so much hope personally, but it's easy to focus on the hope I have personally and not hope reserved for the people around me. But a sign that someone is really beginning to understand the the grace of God in their lives is when they want other people to experience that same grace. And not just in in a flippant way where you say you want grace, but you really want judgment. But when your life has been transformed, when you have had an encounter with the grace of God, you want nothing more than for someone else to experience the same transforming power of grace. And so here's what's true. 
We can either be a conduit of God's grace and his love to the people around us, or we can be a stumbling block. We can't choose to care for every single person in the world. It would probably give you a heart attack. But I do wonder what would happen if we made an intentional decision that said, I'm going to start caring about these people. Maybe it's a people group in the world. Maybe it's some people in your family. Maybe it's some people at your work or in your neighborhood. I, I do believe like when we hold out hope for people and, and we choose to care and we choose to believe that the same grace that has transformed our lives can transform their lives, I think we can start to see God do some incredible things. So there is hope for people that are radically different from you, but there is also a hope specific for you as well. We're going to come down to verse 14, and what started as a word of utter dismay, it ends in, in, in some of the most hopeful, beautiful words penned in all of Scripture. He says, Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Talk about a reason to praise. Like their punishment has been removed. Their enemies have been turned back and the king is among his people. And this isn't just a word for them. This is a word for us. And what I love so much about these verses is that God promises us his presence. And rather than simply just tolerating us, he delights in us. He doesn't just find us useful. He rejoices over us. And now the only pair of eyes that matter for all of eternity look at you and it looks at me with compassion with love, with grace, with, with, this, with this tender sea. Do you know why there is hope for the humble? Because our King has come. And knowing everything there was to know about me and you on our darkest day still chose to die for us, still chose to stand in our place. And he didn't just say it, he proved it. He proved it in a way that said, instead of allowing them to suffer for their sin, I'm going to suffer. Instead of allowing them to bear their shame, I'm going to bear it. I'm going to bear their shame. I'm going to bear their guilt. I'm going to bear their punishment. And on the cross, Jesus defeated the evil that we were enslaved to so that we could be set free. And he doesn't just come to rescue us. He comes and he commits himself to us. He doesn't just offer salvation. He offers us his presence. Jesus took on the wrath of God so that we could encounter the love of God. And there is nothing more life-changing than that. And it's not just theoretical. Like if you're a Christian, God's spirit dwells in you. You have unlimited access to the king of the universe. We all love Zephaniah 3.17. You may have it high, uh, underlined in your Bible. I love Zephaniah 3.17. That's enough to like get you excited for the day. 
but we don't tend to love Zephaniah chapters one and two. And what I've noticed is that in order to get to times of refreshing, we have to go through moments of repentance. And repentance is an ongoing thing because God doesn't just want part of you. He doesn't just want your repentance from 15 years ago. He doesn't want your repentance from 10 years ago or, 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 or six months ago or from a week ago. He wants all of you, and that means he wants the current you. And God can only heal what's broken in us if we're honest with where we're at today. So here's what I want you to ask yourself again this morning. Where is pride lurking in my life? Maybe it shows up in my inability to confess sin. Maybe it shows up in my indifference toward lost people. Or in me needing to people please, which is centered on how people view me. Maybe it shows up in me wanting God to bless my life without wanting God to rule my life. Or maybe it just shows up in me thinking I'm just better than other people. Don't allow pride to prevent you from experiencing the transforming love of God. I graduated Bible college in 2017, and when I first graduated, I started youth pastoring at a local church. And when I look back on that time, I realized that I had so much pride in my heart. Thought I could preach good, and I had all of these radical, cool ideas, and, and if, if this could just become the Jordan show, then we could have taken this thing to the moon. And that pride caused a lot of tension in my heart because I'd find ways to compare. I'd find ways to complain. And it just totally viewed the way I viewed the, my pastor, it changed the way I viewed the congregation, it changed the way I viewed myself, the way I view God. And, and one day I'm reading this little book called A Tale of Three Kings. And the author basically says that there are seasons there are seasons in your life where God will bring you to to expose the sin that's in your own heart. And when I read that, I was cut to the core. Because me working at the church didn't make me a prideful person. Me working at the church exposed the pride that was in my own heart that God wanted to cut out. And until I was able to name that, until I was able to be honest with it, I was only going to perpetuate patterns of unhealth. And, and so God doesn't expose us to shame us. God exposes us to heal us. And what I know to be true is that we can trust God with our honesty. We can trust God with our guilt. We can trust God with our shame. We can trust God with where we're at in this very moment. And what I promise is that repentance won't be met with scolding. Repentance will be met with grace. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're awesome. I thank you, God, that knowing everything there was to know about us, you didn't waver. You didn't hold back, God. You didn't hold back a passionate love for us that, that you would have had every right to, quite frankly. 
And so, Lord, I, I pray, God, that the truth of who you are would allow us to be honest and free in your presence. Lord, I just pray right now if anyone just feels like they're in a bondage of secrets or in a bondage of hiding, Lord, would, would you just uh, open up that, that locked door and allow them to experience freedom and joy and surrender in your presence, God. Lord, if there's any false narratives that, that view you as this scolding God that's just going to say, I told you so, Lord, would you dismantle those lies? And, and I pray that the truth of who you are would fill every heart in this room right now. God, if, if there's things that you're pressing on our hearts to lay down, maybe for the first time, Lord, would you give us the courage to do that? And would you give us the ability to not go back and try to pick them up again? Lord, we are people that are nothing without you. And we want our lives to be marked by humility and grace. And we want to be saturated with your presence all over us, Jesus. So would you help us, God? We thank you that you're patient with us, that you're growing us, Lord, that you're leading us, and that you're transforming us more into the image of Christ. And I thank you, God, that you're so committed to us that you promise that you're going to finish what you started in us. No one in here is a lost cause. And so, Lord, we just, we love you, and we need you, and we come and just say, forgive us, God. Forgive us for the sin, forgive us for the doubt, forgive us for us wanting to be the king of our world and the king of this world. <laughs> Lord, we're just people that are in dire need of grace, and I thank you that you are in no short supply. And so we pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.